Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Welcome again. Uh, my name is George, and I'm going to be bringing our message from Nahum as we continue um, through this little book. Um, let me go ahead and pray, and then we will read the passage. Father, would you take this word and in your spirit just help us to come alive before you? God, will we use the time that you have given us Uh, to proclaim the gospel, to love one another well, to serve one another well. Um, God, to imitate you um, in love and faithfulness and hope and patience. God, will we be your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read. This is Nahum chapter 2. It says, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, how many, do you know motivational posters? Work in a working environment, I don't know, I guess schools probably have them too, maybe in your counselor's office or wherever, but you have these motivational teamwork, some nice picture. I don't know, achievement, 
glory, struggle. Um, there is a site um, which you can look at afterwards. It's called demotivators.com, and they do the opposite. Um, and one of them, as I looked at this message, really stuck out to me, and it's one that has um, this picture. It's, it's the sky, and it says hope. And the tagline is, may not be warranted at this point. I always thought it was actually, it looked like something, it looked like debris, like exploding. And I thought, that, that fit. It's actually vulture circling, viewed from below. We're going to see in chapter 2 a message of hope for Judah. But it's contrasted with the removal of hope for Assyria, for Nineveh. We're going to give a blow-by-blow account of the city's defeat. And we're going to finally be offered a reason um, that Judah can be confident. Yahweh, the divine warrior, declares his personal engagement against the enemy. And so we start today with hope in verses 1 through 2 of of chapter 2. Nahum continues his message by showing Israel that battle plans are already in motion. They can live in an already not yet frame of mind, looking forward to God's future work as they deal with current realities. They can know that one of those current realities is that God's judgment of Nineveh is already underway. Christ the first roots, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, Paul says. Just as Christ was raised, we will be raised. And we can act now, looking forward to the future promise, knowing it's secure in the word of God and in Christ's work on the cross. And just like Paul, Nahum invites Israel to see that the scatterer is already on the move. It's already here. At first blush, Nahum appears to be talking about an unnamed army that approaches Nineveh. But the way Nahum does this, the way he speaks about it, allows Israel to see that God himself is the scatterer as well. In verse 13, he says, Behold, I am against you, says Yahweh, God of armies, Lord of hosts. As God moves to judge Nineveh, he's first and foremost on the scene. Nahum is speaking about 15 to 20 years-ish before Nineveh's actual downfall. And the question is, what will sustain Israel through the coming years? What will, what will lift up our feeble hands except knowing that God is already present and at work, that it isn't dependent on us? And he's already fighting the battle. He's more than prepared. And, and this is not unique to Nahum. Um, as we continue to look at the role of the prophet throughout the rest of the summer, we're going to repeatedly find two things. Um, first, that their MO is to point God's people back to the law, back to the covenant. Um, they're the people's conscience before God when they forget the law. But second, they point the people to what God is do, going to do based on what he is already doing. Nahum encourages Israel to trust God at the height of Nineveh's strength with the fact that God is already there. He's already at work. The scatterer is already present. And so Nahum encourages us to trust God even when it appears evil of the world is unconquerable. The scatterer has already come up against his enemies. God is already present, 
and powerful to judge and to save. And so to any who may wonder why or why now, God offers a simple answer. And so you can look with me at verse 2. He says, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And ultimately, God has not forgotten his people. He knows them personally. It was he who called Abram to be Abraham. It was he who rescued Isaac. It was he who fought with Jacob and called him Israel, called him God persists or God contends. Nahum not only comforts with God's present presence, but he points them to see his work in the past. He's defended them so far. As Assyria has advanced as God's instrument to judge Israel, first the northern kingdom went into exile, never to return. And ultimately, it's Assyria that laid waste to Samaria and Israel, to the northern kingdom. Assyria is the plunderer that Nahum mentions. And Nahum's audience is not ignorant of what Assyria's military dominance has meant for Judah, the southern kingdom. It's Assyria that thought to follow up the defeat of Israel by trying to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. They plundered and ruined the hope that this people had. But now God intends to restore that hope. While there are a number of ways of understanding the pride of Jacob and the pride of Israel, both the expressions are kind of odd. Um, I think the best way to read it is that God intends to make Jerusalem the pride of remaining Jacob, once again the capital of a restored and unified kingdom, a reconstituted Israel. So he offers them this hope that I intend to do more than you could ever have thought possible. You just want safety and security. I have bigger plans. Assyria is ripe for judgment, and this judgment is simply a step along the path to the restoration that God actually desires. And so returning to verse 1, um, as if to reinforce the hopeless state of the city, God offers them a head start. Sort of a, you need a, a benefit, a thing, because I'm so big, something needs to happen. So he says, man the ramparts, watch the road, get where you can see me coming. Get where you see me coming from a distance. Dress for battle, collect all your strength, put your helmet on, put your armor on, make sure your sword is ready. You're, you're mentally prepared to engage with me, right? But God is already there. Who's that? The scatterer and his army is there. There's no reason to climb the ramparts. The battle is at the doorstep. They were caught unprepared. They thought themselves unassailable, but God is their opponent, not just this army. And how do you prepare for that? Or as one commentator writes, mightier than human armies is the prophetic word of God. God has said it. It's going to happen. So hopeless. That's where they live. That's the space they're going to inhabit, hopeless. They've sent messengers to every corner of their empire to threaten, berate, shame into submission. They behaved with malice, bitter cruelty for even slight infractions to their majesty and dominance. In Hezekiah's day, they mocked God's ability to save the city and even suggested that God would take Assyria's side in abandoning Jerusalem. Their messengers have shredded the hopes of cities and kingdoms, and so now they stand condemned and hopeless. Now God's messengers will proclaim a message 
of peace, a message of Nineveh's overthrow, just as we saw last week. So Nahum says, put your trust in Yahweh. Since he will have the victory, live even now as if the battle is over, as if it's finished. It should make us stop and consider what Jesus' victory has done for us. How does the gospel affect the way we live here and now, today, tomorrow, this week? What does scripture tell us it looks like to be a disciple, to be a Christian? What does Jesus teach? What do Paul, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, John, James, what do they tell us? How will we live knowing that God has overcome the world, even overcome death? What does it look like to stand in the day of battle, to follow even when it looks bleak and costly? Because Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's invited us into kingdom citizenship, responsibility, and we're encouraged and we are encouraged and commanded to speak the truth. We're commanded to speak the truth. We're commanded to be angry, but don't sin. How, how are you handling your emotions? Are the emotions something you kind of separate out as not very godly? Or are your emotions God's tool as you evangelize, as you disciple your children, as you care for roommates? It says be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love sacrificially. Guard your tongue. How's your tongue doing? Are you guarding your words? Do those words build up? Do those words build you up? Do they encourage others? Do they have the word of Christ? Do they have Christ's gospel message on them during the week instead of just here on Sunday? Paul says to expose the work of, works of darkness. We're not just supposed to sit idly by and, and be fine with ourselves and let the world go away. We're supposed to expose the works of darkness. We're supposed to make the best use of your time. Are you making the best use of your time? Or are you hoping it's enough? We're supposed to study to know the will of the Lord and be filled with the Spirit. We're supposed to sing. It's a command. Sing to one another. Sing in your spirit. You're supposed to give thanks. How's your thankfulness? Do you see the problems more easily? Or are you thankful for what God has already done in your life and what he promises he's going to do? We're supposed to submit to one another. Are we bowing our chests out and making it about us? Or are we part of a body? We're supposed to obey. We're supposed to serve faithfully. He says, be strong in the Lord. Um, he tells us to put on spiritual armor, to be prepared for a battle that is present whether we want it to be or not. He says to stand firm, not to cower back. He says be prepared to share the gospel. Be praying at all times in the Spirit. And finally, he says to keep alert. Are you alert? That's just a couple chapters from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, we do all these things not to win God's affection, not to earn a place in heaven, nor to boast in our righteousness, 
but because Jesus has already conquered sin and death. He's already here. He's already done the work. Because we love the one who first loved us. So we don't throw up our hands at the evil around us and give up. We trust that God will carry us through, even if it ends in a cross for us. God will have the victory, and he invites us to share it. And that's, that's hope. That's what hope is about. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. Do you feel the security, the hope that God intends his people to have as they counter, as they fight against the world that they are in? That's hope. That's what Nahum intends for Israel to experience. So Nahum has presented both of these sides of hope, that he intends to judge Nineveh, but that that will be hope for Israel. And you already heard what comes next. In a few short verses, uh, Nineveh goes from conqueror to conquered and unmitigated defeat. Uh, You can look with me at verse 3. It says, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. Modern militaries like camouflage. They don't like to be seen coming. It's the mark of the modern soldier. Uh, remaining out of sight. That's, the, that's what you want to be. You don't want to be seen. But when the victory requires getting up close and personal, as it did at this time, different rules apply. Shocking your opponent, intimidating them, that's what you want. That's what you need. That's the key. And Nahum pictures red shields, scarlet clothing, cypress spears, in case you're, cypress is a kind of a red-colored wood. So this, this is a repeating theme of red and scarlet. Um, something gets a reference to blood, maybe as the army advanced onto the city, they've already been in battle, and so they're reddened. If it was just the clothing, that's, that's po- possible, but with the shields and the spears, it seems more is going on than just the idea of blood. Um, other thing that it's a symbolic reference to the Babylonians, um, who, you know, in some accounts are, are known for wearing red, um, which would make sense. Um, but while true, none of this is really Nahum's focus. He doesn't spend a lot of time on who the army is. He doesn't really seem to be focusing on that. Both the shields and uniforms are red because that color speaks of splendor, of majesty. It's fancy. It's intimidating. It's aggressive. It's royal. You have this army dressed in red, prepared for battle. It says, You can even get blood on me. I'm prepared. It'll just blend in. I don't have to change my clothes. I'm ready for this battle. That's what's going on here. It's going to heighten the effect when they do have the battle. So Nahum continues talking about the oncoming forces, and he notices the chariots. Um, In their speed, the chariot um, metal sparks as they advance, or sparkles as they advance, um, And and so this draws Nahum's attention in the poem. Uh, Now, chariots are a well-established tool in the Assyrian army's force. That's this kind of the the part and parcel with what it meant to uh, have an Assyrian army. 
Um, in warfare, they're, they're superb for the time. They're great, um, at least on the open plain. Um, but they're not really the tool for toppling a city. So, so Jerem uh, not Jeremiah, Nahum's picture here of chariots attacking Nineveh is meant sort of as a, a tool. The, the, the tool that Assyria used to dominate others is the tool used to dominate them, to conquer them. It's the Psalm 7 as we read. The pit that they dug is the pit that they fall in. Live by the sword, die by the sword. So it's this idea of getting their just desserts. So this being the case, what Nahum has seen is awe-inspiring. It's truly terrifying uh, for Nineveh and encouraging for Israel. In verses 4 to 5, we then see um, the Ninevite response. Nineveh's own chariots in the city are at a disadvantage. Again, Chariots are good for, for open spaces, for, for the battle on the open field, for wide open streets. But inside the city walls, they don't have space. So you have all these chariots rushing to and fro around. They're trying to find a way out of the city where they can be more effective, where they can be a better use to guard and protect the city. But they can't get out. The city's surrounded. It's well being attacked. They can't get out. And so all they're rushing around is for nothing. Rather than the organized and magnificent advance of God's army, the Ninevite charioteers seem panicked. And Nahum barely mentions the king who, who watches. He's just stunned and finally remembers, oh yeah, I have more than just these chariots. And so he, he commands his officers to the walls. Get there, make haste, start defending the city, they trip over their own fault feet. They, they stumble on the way. It's too much for them. It's all in vain. They get to the walls only to realize that the enemy's siege tower is already up. Their walls are done for. They're too late to stop the defense. The walls are doomed, and so is the city. So despite Assyrian reputation for military prowess, when God decides to attack, the people are not ready. They're racing about without direction, sheep without a shepherd. And in Nahum's verses, the focus shifts quickly. The sound is echoing battle. It's that, you know, you can't quite gather the focus so mixed up and brutal that they don't have time to react. And then verse 6, the river gates are opened. Um, it's likely what Nahum envisions here is not necessarily a flooding um, as much as um, attackers entering through a limited entry, a, a breach in the wall that's close to where the water comes in. But because they infiltrate through this defense, they're able to attack two important points. The first is the palace, and the second is the temple. And these would have symbolized Assyria, Nineveh, the king's dominance, his, his power to rule this city well and thus rule the nation well. Um, there's actually more than one palace and so the point that Nahum would be trying to bring out is that this is the you know, place where the king rules from, and it, and it melts. It's simply unable to withstand the incoming invaders who are coming in like a flood. It just falls very quickly and without resistance. And similarly, um, the temple. Um, 
Nineveh was well known for a temple to Ishtar, this, this important goddess for Assyria. And the statue of this false goddess is simply stripped. It's carried off. It doesn't sound like any resistance. Nahum doesn't picture for us any, any pushback. It's just done for. As these people flood in, there's nothing Nineveh, Nineveh can do. Nineveh is boasted in heavenly protection and its military might and the gods' care and empowerment for its military, and it all comes to nothing. It doesn't help them. In verse 8, um, we find the midpoint of the entire book, and Nineveh is mentioned by name for the first time um, since the title in chapter 1. Finally, God puts a name to who everybody knew he was talking about the whole time. But nothing good comes of naming Nineveh. While the attackers are portrayed as water entering the city, here the defenders are portrayed as water flowing out of the city. The picture is of complete destruction. Nineveh boasts itself on being, again, protected by waters, having water flowing through the city. It's a blessing to the city, but instead, water is flowing into flood. Water is flowing out in destruction. It's completely wasted. Nineveh is helpless. It's defenseless. And then Nahum directs attention to the plunder. Um, Assyria has plundered cities and kingdoms. It's taken riches by force and collected them in Nineveh. It's exacted riches from even those cities that have been subjugated and not taken. Nineveh was rich, but now it is plundered. The plunder of verse 2 has become the plundered. And so now to the end of the matter, verse 10, he says, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. The inhabitants now are recognized as powerless. They're mortified at the sight of Nineveh ruined. And so the blood just drains from their faces. It's terror. None could escape um, from Nineveh's advances before, and now there's no escape left for even the people of Nineveh. And again, we look ahead to the end of the chapter, verse 13. He says, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. The focus is again on God's control of even those who would oppose him. He could have sent a battalion of angels. Instead, he chooses this army to accomplish his will. God disarms Nineveh. He puts them to shame. He triumphs over them. But remember that Nineveh is just one enemy. It's just an example just an example of God's will to deal finally with evil that is opposed to God's rule. It's no surprise that Paul sees Nahum's vision of Nineveh reflected in Christ's victory on the cross. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing over them. Our condition was hopeless. We were dead in trespasses, cut off from God's people, and God's righteous anger marked our every sin. 
what sin? The sin of Adam, of Eve, the longing to choose our own adventure, to live independently of God and believe the lie, the choice to ignore God's order in creation, to reject God's intentions and design for mankind, to live with the consequences of toil and pain and shame and death. And then to see your own children descend into fratricide and worse. Or the sin of, of Babel. Uh, to seek our own way to God. To try to please God by our own imagination. To make our own name great as opposed to God's name. Or the sin of the judges. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Treating God like a good luck charm. Violence animism, seeking a word from God when his silence has already been spoken as a judgment, or the sin of Israel, to reject the covenant blessings through David, to set up our own altars and idols in a vain effort to win the hearts of people who might otherwise actually go and worship God properly. The sin of Judah to ignore the warnings, to think oneself unassailable. That's what Jeremiah is fighting with. Judah thinks that it's protected. It's guaranteed safety because of God. All this despite numerous prophets like Nahum who tell them that God has wrath against sin, against injustice. Or the sin of Jerusalem, um, hypocrisy, envy, greed. Uh, to have... Christ in your temple and to reject him, to see God's power on display and say, that's Satan. And what mercy then in Jesus to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. How is it possible for God to triumph over such wickedness, such gross and flagrant rebellion? And the disciples go so far as to ask, who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So Nahum says what I want to say to you this morning. Put your trust in God. Believe my report and live in the hope God gives. Nothing is impossible with him. There's power in the blood of Jesus to counter every sin to crush every enemy, to carry you through every storm, and to bring you safely home in him. And that leaves us with three more verses um, of Nahum chapter 2 that show us the, the ramifications of Nineveh's fall for the king and the empire. Nahum continues, Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Assyria's kings ruling from Nineveh stylized themselves frequently as lions. And so it's fitting that Nahum would picture them as a lion's den destroyed, left vacant. They dominated. They protected the, the, the line of kings, the sons, the, the children. 
Um, They provided for their people. And in their cruelty and voracious appetites that that lion represented, they were highly successful for a time. But now they're nowhere to be found. That's the image name gives. It's just they're not there. He says, behold, I am against you. The sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And again, we're reminded that judgment belongs to the Lord. Assyria will be nowhere. It'll have nowhere to turn. The line of the kings, it's going to end. There won't be a king to rise up in its place. There'll no longer be prey for this nation to feast on and grow and develop. Assyria is as doomed as its capital, Nineveh. It's not without reason, then, that Peter reminds the church, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This same Peter reminds the church that they've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. John tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and points to a time when the kingdom of the world present world, will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ in the future. Paul reminds the church that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers and reminds another church of the sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All these picture a real enemy beyond Nineveh, a real enemy that God opposes, that Christ went to the cross to defeat for us. Behold, I am against you, Nahum writes. Paul reminds us in a match fashion that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Nineveh ultimately points to a greater enemy. We're not meant to read this book and simply go, yep, Nineveh's done. God did what he said. I can go now read the next book. We're meant to see Nineveh as purely an example of what God will do to all evil that opposes him. Spiritual forces opposed to his good rule. Ultimately, they're lions. They're hunting for us. We're in their territory And Nineveh points the way to a deliverer as well. The divine warrior, the Lord of hosts, has made a way. So as Nahum comforts and assures Judah, the gospel comforts and assures us by pointing us to a mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, John tells us. In John's gospel, he also... um, Has Jesus, as he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And what words of comfort as John reminds the church, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The writer of Hebrews does similarly. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, you and me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to reconcile us to God. Three minor prophets, <clears throat> three minor prophets Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, bridge the space between the fall of Nineveh and the rise of the Babylonians. Uh, prophets before them speak of an earthly king in David's line, the Messiah, and explicitly look forward to his coming kingdom. Prophets after do the same. But Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah all point elsewhere. Then maybe, maybe it's a sense of disillusionment. They've been through kings in David's line like Manasseh and Naaman. Nahum didn't see this, but you have Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, evil kings doing wickedly. These prophets all point Judah towards hope in God himself. And the New Testament brings these two streams, these two trajectories together. The Davidic king will be the divine son of God. But it's enough for Nahum to point his kinsmen to God. God is their rescue and hope. God is the only savior. So Nahum's message of judgment on Nineveh continues to point us towards hope. Christ has confronted every evil that stands against God's restoration of his people. The defeat is settled. And you're meant to live in that settled defeat of the enemy, of the grave, of sin. The enemy thought that they were secure in their stronghold and that they could not be opposed. Even so, Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross plundered the strong man's house. Christ exalted empowers his people and shames every enemy to God's glorious reign. And so we live with the reality that the devil prowls like a lion, but we have strength and provision to withstand him. We have the promise of God to carry us through. He says, and hear this as it's meant to be taken, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The effects of Christ's overwhelming victory are rich toward us. Forgiveness. Are you living in the power of forgiveness? Or are you secretly building up guilt that causes you to flee God's presence, to avoid your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you living in the holiness that he provides? The fact that you are identified with him, that his name is written on you and you're an image of him to the world, to one another. His overwhelming victory should bring us joy to know there is no condemnation to know that God stands before us, that Jesus defends us even against Satan's accusations. 
Jesus' overwhelming victory means we have the Spirit to convict us of sin, to help us build one another up, to accomplish those things Christ has put before us. We don't accomplish them on our own strength. We accomplish them because the Spirit gives us that power to do it. And finally, Christ's victory means we have unity in the body of Christ, that he's made a whole new people that none of us could have imagined. So are we behaving as that people? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word. God, that you speak in Nahum a message of judgment on your enemies that speaks hope to us, that calls us to trust you even now when it still seems that evil has the upper hand at times. We know that you are the victor. We know that you've conquered sin. You've conquered the grave. You prepare a place for us. That you give us your own spirit and desire us to grow in holiness to be like you. God, we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.